0: Welcome to Present Value. Hi,
1: Present Value listeners. I'm George Hartman, a Johnson MBA student and co-president of Johnson's Geopolitics Club. I'm pleased to introduce this episode with Professor Barry Strauss. The interview focuses on history, why it matters, and how to write about it. He and Greg discuss the process of researching and writing about ancient history, modern relevance of ancient leadership principles and military tactics, and how academia can continue to engage students in history studies amidst the rising cost of higher education. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at presentvaluepod.
0: I'm your host, Greg Wool. Barry Strauss is the Bryce and Edith M. Bomar Professor in Humanistic Studies at Cornell University's College of Arts and Sciences Department of History, where he recently completed six years as that department's chair. Professor Strauss is a classicist and military historian. He is an expert in military strategy and currently serves as director of Cornell's Program on Freedom and Free Societies, an organization he also founded. His books, including Battle of Salamis*, The Naval Encounter That Saved Greece and Western Civilization, The Death of Caesar, The Story of History's Most Famous Assassination, and Masters of Command, Alexander, Hannibal, Caesar, and the Genius of Leadership, have received wide praise from Time, The Wall Street Journal, Barons, and The Times of London. He has written articles for The Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and The Daily Beast, just to name a few. He is the recipient of the Clark, now Russell, Award for Excellence in Teaching, has received the Lucio Coletti Journalism Prize for Literature, and was named an honorary citizen of Salamis, Greece. He currently hosts the podcast Antiquitas, which you can find at his website, barrystrauss.com, or through your favorite podcast client. Professor Barry Strauss, thank you for joining us on Present Value.
1: Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: In your 2019 Daily Beast article, What's So Useful About Studying Ancient History, you write that present-day Americans may be woefully ignorant to U.S. history, but that this trend is sadly nothing new. You write that Americans represent a stark contrast relative to our peer nations today and to the founders of the United States almost 300 years ago. To what do you attribute this shift over time?
1: It's a good question. I think that America has always been a country in love with the new, And in love with the young as well. And countries that look at the new and the young tend to be less interested in the past. Americans are always looking forward, not so eager to be looking backward. I think there's something very American in what Henry Ford said when he said that history is bunk. I think a lot of Americans understand that. And that can be a problem.
0: In your opinion, what is lost when a nation's people demonstrate a lack of interest in the past?
1: well i think perhaps it's not just a matter of a lack of interest in the past because i think that everyone's interested in the past rather it's a lack of knowledge of the past and if you don't have a firm foundation a firm grip on what the knowledge of the past was then you are unable to judge statements that people make about what the past was and what the future might be i think it's faulkner who said the past is not even past and it's absolutely true. People are, are always debating in the present about what the past was and what its significance is for the future. And I think that's why it's so important for us to, to study history and have some sense of what the past is. I think it has to be an important part of our education.
0: You, of course, are a historian, a professor, and a writer. And I'd imagine each of these disciplines requires a, a different focus and energy. And I'd like to spend some time discussing your work specifically as a history writer. I'm curious to know the process behind what actually ends up on the page of one of your books. I can imagine a challenge in determining what knowledge you can assume your reader has. You have to determine which ancient terms to translate, where you need to add context, what historical events you might allude to without exposition. And at the same time, to ensure you're providing an enjoyable read, you have to provide enough details that the reader can follow your writing without feeling bogged down in minutiae or condescended to. How do you navigate this balance?
1: That's a great question. And the short answer is with great difficulty. (laughs) It is a difficult balance to navigate. I always send my drafts of my workout to friends who are non-experts. And luckily, I have very generous friends who are willing to read it and tell me whether they think the level is right. But above all, I depend on my editor. And I have an excellent editor who gives me his very professional take on what I need to explain and what I don't. And sometimes the results are surprising to me. Sometimes, for instance, I think that I need to explain something in detail and repeatedly. And he'll say, no, the reader got it the first time. Other times he'll ask me to explain something and I'll say, really? Oh, okay, I guess so, sure. And I forget what I know as an expert who's immersed myself in this minutiae and what an educated layperson might know. So. You really need friends and and an editor to help you with this.
0: Before you even get to that stage, you have to determine or decide what to write about in the first place. How do you balance your interests, your areas of expertise, and maybe even public appetite when selecting a project?
1: Another great question. There's no easy answer, but you have to think, first of all, about what do I want to write about? What do I think is important? What's interesting to me in my career? And then you have to ask, what does the public want to read about? Because they're not necessarily the same thing. And then you have to think about a negotiation between what you want and what is practical, what the public wants, what you want to explain. Sometimes as a scholar, I'm interested in something really minute, but the public's not necessarily interested in that. So you have to think of ways of negotiating. You also have to think about themes, because the themes can often be very different than the details of what you're writing about. So you might be writing about an ancient war, but the theme that you might want to talk about might be special operations, or it might be information warfare, or it might be financial warfare, or it might be the rise and fall of empires. And so you have to think about how your particular research might fit together with those themes. That's a negotiation as well.
0: Thinking about that, you've returned a couple of times to the period right around the life of Julius Caesar. And your next book, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium, returns to the time following Caesar's death. And that work is seemingly bookended by your book, The Death of Caesar, and then your book, The Ten Caesars, that starts with Augustus and and works through the Roman Empire. Would you prefer that your readers' take these books in as a series? Or do you think of them as individual works that might be enjoyed just as well on their own?
1: Well, of course, I'd like my readers to read all of my books. But I think they can be enjoyed on their own. I think you'd get a certain enrichment if you read them as a series. But they're not meant to be written as a series. Of course, in my mind, and as I imagine them, I do learn from the different works. And they do, they do all come together. But they're written to be self-standing books.
0: On that note, I'm curious how you select a starting point for any particular event. When everything in history seems to be the result of something that came before it and context is key to understanding your subjects, how do you determine the appropriate place to start?
1: Oh, That is a great question. And sometimes this is a subject that I go back and forth on with my editor. Sometimes I might think something is the right starting point and he'll say, you know, that's just not going to work for the reader. It really has to start somewhere else. Sometimes an anecdote or an incident will just kind of jump off the page as this is where the story should start. So with the death of Caesar, I started it with the return of Caesar to Italy in, I guess, the fall of 45 BC or perhaps the summer of 45 BC with Antony and Octavian and meeting Marcus Brutus, in Northern Italy after they had crossed the Alps. Somehow that little traveling party seemed to me to be a great way to start the story.
0: What better way to start than a point of no return in literally crossing the Rubicon, right?
1: You got it, yeah.
0: Now, in writing your books, you've actually traveled to Europe, Africa, and the Middle East to conduct research. How does being on site affect the quality of your research and the availability of materials and the content or words that actually end up in your books?
1: Oh, it's huge. I don't think you can write about a battle without actually visiting the battlefield. Well, of course you could, but it's really not desirable to do that. You really want to see the place. And even though the terrain has changed somewhat, rivers, for instance, change their courses, shorelines can get silted up. Of course, there's modern construction and roads. Even for all the changes, basically, the landscape has remained the same since antiquity. And without visiting the place, it's very hard to have a sense of what it might have been like. Often, buildings are part of the story. And although very few ancient buildings stand to the roof line, let us say, we have the foundations of many ancient buildings. But you just get all sorts of insights when you visit a place that you can't get off the paper, Uh, you can't get from reading even a good account of it. Nowadays, of course, we have Google Earth, and that helps quite a bit. But it's not the same as seeing it with your own eyes and taking a fresh look at the place.
0: We were talking earlier about Americans ignorance of history relative to other nations. And I have a sort of hypothesis there that because America is a young country relative to those nations in Europe and Africa and the Middle East, if just being in the presence of the ancient changes one's scope or appreciation of history in a way that one can't if the oldest thing that one sees is three to 400 years old.
1: Oh, that's very perceptive. I think that Being where the monuments are, being where there are antiquities, does really shape things. Sometimes people in the Mediterranean, say complain that there are too many antiquities. It can get in the way of development or construction. In Rome, for instance, building new subway lines is a famous difficulty because wherever you you start digging, you run into antiquities. The antiquities authorities have to come in, etc., and so forth, and it slows things down. But it certainly does make you more aware of the past when you have so many layers of the past where you are.
0: Well, I've really enjoyed reading your books in preparation for this interview. I found them enthralling as though I'm reading a a gripping novel in which the narrator, instead of being omnipotent, cites his sources along the way. We actually have a short passage from your book, The Death of Caesar. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd love it if you could share it with our readers. Before you start, I'll I'll give a warning to any listeners with sensitivities to violence or young children in earshot. This passage does contain depictions of violence. So when this section begins, Caesar is in Pompey's Senate House, and the attack on his life has already begun. Caesar's friend Casca has struck the first blow, maybe with a sword or maybe with a dagger. And depending on whose history you read, Caesar may have grabbed Casca's blade to defend himself, and he may even have stabbed Casca with a stylus and Caesar is shouted out, perhaps cursing Casca by name, and Casca has shouted to his brother Gaius for help, and Gaius now has just stabbed Caesar in the ribs when this passage begins.
1: Pause for a moment as the other assassins draw their daggers. Pause to contemplate the Roman nobility. They believed that they were carrying out their sworn duty to defend the Republic. By attacking Caesar, the assassins believed they were covering themselves with glory. They did it out of conviction. They did it out of self-interest. They did it out of hatred. They did it out of jealousy. And they did it out of honor. They were the descendants of the senators who murdered the reforming Gracchi brothers in 133 BC and 121 BC. And of the patricians who sat like statues dressed in togas when the Gauls sacked Rome in 387 BC and thus died fearlessly. The conspirators surrounded Caesar in a circle, again, a sign of careful planning. The blows now came fast and furious. If Caesar was indeed standing, he could not have stayed on his feet for long, probably less than a minute. Plutarch's description of Caesar being driven here and there like a wild beast sounds like poetic exaggeration. In short order, Caesar fell not far from his chair.
0: Thank you so much. I love that passage because it demonstrates the ease with which you cite references while adding a bit of poetry and psychology in order to help the reader understand the context. And at the same time, you don't shy away from the brutal deeds of the actors involved. How much of what ends up on the page that you just read is there from the start? And how much is the result of repeated passes at the same section as you write?
1: Well, you know, as William Zinzer said, writing is rewriting. And that's certainly the case with me. All my work has to go through multiple drafts to get it in anything like the way I'd like it to be on the page. And then when it's on the page and the book is printed, I look at it and thought, oh, boy, it needed another revision or two.
0: <laughs> now, for armchair historians today, there's no shortage of available material. People can access textbooks or podcasts and books like yours. They can seek out history-focused YouTube channels. I, myself, am fond of Dan Carlin's hardcore history. Additionally, there's always been a diet for quality historical fiction. I, Claudius, Wolf Hall, and maybe HBO's series Rome. For any fans of history in our listening audience, do you have a recommendation on how one should ideally balance various intensities of historical rigor?
1: Hmm. Well, the more history, the better. I mean, you've put it very well. There are some very good podcasts out there and YouTube programs on history. And often they have the advantages, the YouTube ones in particular, of actually showing you images of a place or places. Then, of course, there's no substitute for reading history, reading the work of what professional historians have to say. And Another great thing about the Internet nowadays is there are lots of selections of sources, historical sources, that you can actually read on the Internet. And they can be eye-opening. Even something from as recently as 19th century America, sometimes when you read those documents, it's quite striking to see how different they are than the way we look at things today. And then historical novels. And there are just a number of wonderful historical novels. You always have to take them with a certain grain of salt, realizing that the writer is not necessarily an expert on the material, and also that the writer has to appeal to modern day audiences and sensibilities, so often makes the characters somewhat more modern than they really were in order for them to appeal to us. But they can add a wonderful dimension of things because a novelist doesn't have to say maybe, perhaps, could be. A novelist can just tell you the story, and a novelist can imagine what might have been going on in someone's mind as a lot of dimension. I love historical novels myself.
0: Do you have any writers that you think have done an especially good job?
1: Oh, there are many. I teach a course next semester on ancient warfare and I assign two novels. One is Stephen Pressfield's novel about the Battle of Thermopylae, which is called Gates of Fire. I think that's an excellent one. And then a novel by Rosemary Sutcliffe, who was a British novelist in the middle of the 20th century. It's called The Eagle of the Ninth. It's about... Romans in Britain. It's a challenging read, which is a bit daunting when you consider that she wrote it in the 1950s for a young adult audience. It tells us something about where we are today. And they made a pretty good Hollywood movie out of it a couple of years ago called The Eagle.
0: Let's now dive into the weeds on a few topics that you've covered in your books. We were talking about historical fiction, and maybe the most famous historical fiction of all time is Homer's The Iliad, which is corrected for in your book, The Trojan War. Let me set you up here. Was the Trojan War actually started with the abduction of Helen of Troy and ended by rolling a wooden horse containing hidden soldiers into an enemy's gates?
1: (laughs) Well, we of course don't know how the Trojan War began or ended, but Homer was not merely a poet or a writer of fiction. He was a representative of the historical memory of the Greek people and the way people remembered things in ancient times in that particular period was they remember them through poetry and through exaggeration. They remembered names more than anything else, names of people, names of places. But they expected the memory of the past to turn ordinary people into heroic figures. Also, Unlike now, when we tend to think that the only legitimate motive for something has to be analytical and bottom line, then they tended to think that the only legitimate motive for something had to be personal and individual. So nowadays, we would consider it totally illegitimate for our leaders to say, we're going to war because we as a nation have been insulted and we have to avenge our honor. But In that period of history, they would have thought that any other reason for going to war was unacceptable. Of course, people went to war to get the goodies, to get the loot, to get prizes, but they would justify war in terms of personal honor. So can we say for a fact that the Greeks attacked Troy because Helen, the queen of Sparta, had been abducted or seduced by the Trojans? No, of course not. Is it plausible? Well, not entirely, but we do know that in the Bronze Age in the period of history to which Homer's looking back that ended several centuries before his poem was composed, we know that people would talk about going to war for reasons of dynastic politics. We even have an example of a war that took place because of a marriage contract that wasn't honored. And many examples of people fighting because someone would say, you insulted my father. So the notion that a war would take place because of dynastic considerations or relations between a prince and a princess, a queen and a prince, not out of the question. Although we certainly can't have any confidence that there was a war between the Greeks and the Trojans over a particular princess named Helen. Likewise, you asked about the end of the Trojan War and the Trojan horse. So no, we can't be confident that there really was a Trojan horse, but you know what? We do have examples from historical chronicles from the second millennium BC of wars that were ended or were won when one side would use a ruse. For example, we have a Mesopotamian chronicles, so roughly from today's Iraq that talks about an army laying siege to a city. It was unable to take the city. And so the army pretended to retreat. It went far enough away that it couldn't be observed by the people in the city. And the people in the city, perhaps because they were tired after a long siege and had let their guard down, decided that the enemy had given up and gone home and they opened the gates. And the next night the enemy came back and took the city and slaughtered the people within. That's not all that different from what happens to Troy in the epic cycle. Take away the Trojan horse and you have the Greeks leaving their camp at Troy, pretending to go back to Greece, but only going so far away is the island of Tenedos, which I think is maybe six nautical miles away from Troy. It's not very far. It's easily visible with the naked eye from from the shore. Going behind the island where they couldn't be seen and then coming back at night, which they could have done. And they might have left a horse behind as a symbol of submission, because the horse was the symbol of Troy, because the Trojans were horse dealers. And the Trojans might have let their guard down and left the gates open or unguarded. The idea that there were Greeks inside the horse, that's pushing it a bit, I think. Not totally out of the question, but pushing it. The rest of it, to me, actually fits military doctrine as far as we can reconstruct it from the second millennium BC. So I have no trouble believing it. In fairness, I have to point out that even some of the ancient sources didn't believe it. And they said, nah, there wasn't really a horse. It's just symbolic terms.
0: Fascinating. Moving on now from one bard to another, In your lecture covering the death of Caesar, you point out that many people's idea of what happened in the Senate House, that Ides of March when Caesar was assassinated, comes from the play by Shakespeare. But as in the case of Homer, the entertainment doesn't necessarily match the historical record. What are some of the key misconceptions surrounding the assassination of Julius Caesar?
1: Sure. Great question. But let me just preface it by saying that Shakespeare's Julius Caesar is a truly great work of literature, and nothing that I could do or say in my petty work as a historian could be in the same league. So that being said, Shakespeare was not a historian. He didn't claim to be a historian. He did a very good job of following the account that he got in Plutarch's life of Julius Caesar. And Plutarch also wrote a life of Brutus. Shakespeare also seems to have had access to some version of the other most detailed ancient account, which comes from a writer named Appian, who lived in Alexandria. Plutarch lived in Greece. Appian lived in Alexandria, Egypt. They each lived about 100, 150 years after Caesar's assassination. So they are not contemporary sources. But Shakespeare did a good job of following them. But there are some misconceptions in both of them. Probably the most famous that we get in Shakespeare is when Caesar saw that Marcus Brutus was attacking him, he said, et tu Brute, then die Caesar. So, et tu Brute is not something that Caesar said. It's not in the ancient sources. Et tu Brute was invented in the Renaissance. It's Latin, of course, and Latin was Caesar's native language and it means you too, Brutus. It indicates a sense of disappointment and betrayal that Brutus, who Caesar had treated almost like a son and whom Caesar had forgiven for having opposed him in the civil war, that Brutus would betray him in this way. Caesar had forgiven Brutus and also elevated him to high political office. So what did Caesar say? Well, the ancient sources say he probably said nothing. He probably just groaned. But they also say there was a rumor that the last thing he said was in Greek, not Latin. And the Greek is not all that different from et tu brute. It's kai su technon, which means you too, child. You too, child, or you too, my son. Why would Caesar speak Greek? He was fluent in Greek and educated Romans, members of the Roman elite, especially literary figures like Caesar, would know Greek as a matter of course. It'd be an important part of their education. So not entirely wrong what Shakespeare said, though, again, the ancient sources say he didn't say anything. It's just a rumor. So why is there this nasty rumor? It's a nasty rumor because gossip said that Brutus was Caesar's son. He was his illegitimate son. And why did Gossip say that? Because Caesar really and truly had an affair with Brutus' mother. Her name was Servilia, and we're told that she was the greatest love of Caesar's life. And Caesar had a lot of love, so that's saying something for her to have been the greatest one. Caesar was 15 at the time when Brutus was born. It's not likely that he was Brutus' father, but it is not 100% impossible. And some people think that In the last moment of his life, Caesar had the presence of mind to say to Brutus, in effect, actually, I really am your father, it's true, and you have just murdered your own father, which is the most heinous thing a Roman can do. Have a nice day. It doesn't seem very likely that Caesar really had that presence of mind while he's being assassinated and spilling out his blood on the floor of the Senate House. So another misconception or something that's not in Shakespeare, because Shakespeare didn't know it, is that Caesar's mistress Cleopatra, Shakespeare did know this, it's in Plutarch, but Caesar's mistress Cleopatra, who was queen of Egypt, was not in Egypt. She was in Rome. She had come to Rome on business. And Caesar put her up in no less a location than his villa across the Tiber River. So Cleopatra was living at the time of the assassination across the Tiber, a mile or two away from the place where Caesar was being assassinated. She was actually in Rome. That's not very well known either. So that's an important part of the story as well.
0: Fascinating. And... You talk about some of the irony in Brutus being involved, that Brutus had fought against Caesar. And Caesar, in forgiving Brutus, this was very typical of Caesar to sort of bring his enemies close afterwards and keep them under his wing. Brutus, for reasons that you just elucidated, has sort of become synonymous as a word with betrayal. But in your book, you describe another of Caesar's assassins who may have been even more heartbreaking. Who was that individual and why doesn't he get the credit?
1: Yeah, his name is Decimus Brutus. He was a distant distant cousin of Marcus Brutus. They both were descended at least claimed to be descended from the founder of the Roman Republic centuries earlier. Like Marcus Brutus, he was a Roman noble, though from a somewhat of a more rogue roguish family than than Marcus Brutus's. He was very close to Caesar. He was even closer to Caesar than Marcus Brutus was. So Marcus Brutus earlier in life had been a supporter of Pompey and the Republicans who were Caesar's enemy in his rise to power. Decimus Brutus had always been on Caesar's side. He had fought for Caesar in the conquest of Gaul, the Gallic Wars. He'd fought for Caesar in the Civil War and Caesar rewarded him. He was so close that he was actually at the dinner party that Caesar went to the night before Caesar was assassinated. And yet he had decided to betray Caesar. He was in on the assassination. We know a little bit about Decimus Brutus because almost a dozen of his letters have survived and more letters that were written to him by Cicero have survived. He was someone who cared a great deal about his reputation and about his honor. He doesn't seem to have cared that much about abstract notions of liberty and the Republic. And I speculate that he turned on Caesar because he could see that Caesar was really putting all of his eggs in the basket of his grandnephew, Octavian, Gaius Octavius at the time, and Caesar decided to elevate him over Decimus Brutus. But to get back to your question, so if his betrayal of Caesar was even greater, why don't we know about it? It's because poor Decimus did not have a very good press operation. Unlike Marcus Brutus, who was himself a writer and a philosopher who left writings behind him and who was remembered warmly by other Romans who wrote about him, Decimus was none of those things. He was not a literary guy, and he didn't have a great crew behind him. He's killed pretty early on in the civil war that follows Caesar's death, and he is really looked down on as the closest member of Caesar's entourage who turned on him, much worse than Marcus Brutus. So he just doesn't have much of a press, and he gets very little notice in Plutarch and Plutarch's life of, of Caesar. So he gets little notice in Shakespeare, and the final insult is that Shakespeare gets his name wrong. The man's name was Decimus, but he appears in Shakespeare as Decius which is not even his name. So he plays a pretty small role, significant role, but a pretty small role in the play. He's the guy who on the Ides of March, Caesar's supposed to go to the Senate meeting where he's going to be assassinated. His wife doesn't want him to go and the omens are unfavorable and he decides not to go. So the assassins send Decimus to Caesar to talk him into going. Decimus is so close to Caesar that he can talk him into going. Decimus also, as a military man, He can really get to Caesar and say, Come on, Caesar, are you a man or are you going to let this woman talk you out of going? Very sexist, but very effective in getting Caesar to say, Okay, okay, I'll tell my wife I'm going to go to the Senate meeting anyhow. So Desimus plays a key role, and Shakespeare pays some attention to it, but he just doesn't do very much with it.
0: Shifting now to Greece, your book, The Battle of Salamis, covers some ground that might not be as familiar to readers as The Death of Caesar. Can you provide a short summary of that great naval clash and also share why you chose it as a subject for your book? Yeah. So Salamis
1: is one of the decisive naval battles of history. The Persian Empire, which was the largest empire in human history to that date, invaded Greece in 480 BC in a joint land-sea operation. The invasion was led by the Persian king Xerxes, and the Persians were determined to conquer the Greek city-states and to annex them as part of the Persian Empire. The Athenians and the Spartans make a joint effort to oppose that, and the decisive battle, the battle that turns things around, is a naval battle that takes place off the shore of Athens within sight of the Athenian Acropolis at the end of the month of September in the year 480 BC. That's the Battle of Salamis, and it is a smashing Greek victory. Even though the Greek navy is outnumbered by the Persians about two to one, Greeks win the battle. As a result of that, the Persians have to scale back their expedition enormously. The king goes back home with what's left of the Persian fleet, leaving a rump Persian army in central Greece that is in fact conquered by the Greeks in the following spring. But Salamis is the decisive battle. Salamis is what really turns things around. It's a really important battle because, for one thing, it is the battle that saves Athenian democracy. If the Persians had won, they would have put an end to Athens' nascent democracy with historical consequences that are almost unthinkable. For another thing, it is an utterly fascinating battle because the Greeks won by deception. They deceived the Persians on every level And the Greek leader, a man named Themistocles, a man who should be famous today, but is not, at least not in the United States. He's certainly famous in Greece. Themistocles even deceives the other Greeks and to some extent deceives his own people. He is a master trickster. He's the most cunning Greek since Odysseus. It allows him to have the battle fought on the terms that he wants, where he wants, and when he wants. And that has everything to do with why the Greeks win. So it is, it's absolutely a textbook battle for military and naval academies and for, for historians of antiquity. And it's a totally wonderful story. It's an epic tale involving Greeks and Persians and many different peoples of the ancient world.
0: Your book, Masters of Command, Alexander, Hannibal, Caesar, and the Genius of Leadership is a thoughtful study of principles of leadership that allowed those three individuals to achieve intercontinental domination. Of all the leaders in ancient history, what made these three ideal focal points for your examination of leadership? Well,
1: the three of them are a set because Alexander, Hannibal, and Caesar each tried to conquer an empire. Alexander and Caesar succeeded, Hannibal failed. But Hannibal modeled himself on Alexander, and so to a certain extent did Caesar. There are other similarities as well. Each of them attacked an enemy who had far greater resources than he in manpower and money. They each had a small, elite veteran army. And they're each able to leverage this army to achieve great things. When Alexander invaded the Persian Empire, he only had about 35,000 men. When Hannibal crossed the Alps into Italy, his army that originally had 80,000 men was down to less than 30,000 men, plus 37 elephants, famously. And Caesar had more men than that, more like 50,000. But he had no navy, and he faced an enemy that had a navy that had the apparatus of the Roman state and its treasury at its disposal. So each of them was trying to do something That was very difficult to do, and each of them had great confidence in his army. They were all great commanders, each in a different way, but Alexander and Caesar were more successful strategists, we might say. Hannibal is the most fascinating of the three because he's a failure, and his failure is intriguing. Why did he fail? It's also a mystery story because we don't have one single word that comes from Hannibal or his side are the Carthaginians. We entirely get our story from Romans and Greeks who were in the service of Rome. And we have to try to piece together what happened and why we think it happened when it did. All three of them, each of them was a tremendous egotist. And that egotism hurt them, each in his own way. Alexander was unable to stop. You would have thought that after conquering the Persian Empire, this astonishing feat, that he would have settled down to govern it and focus on domestic things, building a dynasty for the rest of his life. Not at all. Instead, his focus is on continuing conquests. are new worlds to conquer Has no interest in stopping. He also couldn't resist fighting in the front lines of battles, which led to him being wounded a number of times on several occasions, very serious wounds. And he dies before his 33rd birthday of a virus, we think. Either he dies of a virus, to which he seems to be uniquely susceptible. We don't hear of many other people dying at the time, and it may be because of his wounds he was just as susceptible, or maybe he was just unlucky. There's also a, a minority opinion in the ancient world who says he was poisoned by his fellow commanders who couldn't stand the thought of his endless ambitions. Caesar was so good a general and a conqueror that he defeats all his enemies and becomes the supreme commander of the Roman Empire. He's the first and last person in Roman history to be named dictator for life. But he really can't square the circle of reconciling the old Roman elite to the new power that he has. And so he is assassinated and never enjoys his newfound power. And Hannibal? Well, the question with Hannibal is, did he make a mistake in his strategy If he had employed a different strategy, might he have defeated the Romans? Or was his fundamental mistake going to war with the Romans in the first place? Was the Roman Republic by this point simply too strong? Was it invincible? And was it merely Hannibal's egotism that had him subject his country and the world to such a disastrous and bloody war, when instead if he'd been a realist would the wise thing to have done to have appeased the Romans And made a treaty with them, recognizing we don't like it, but there's nothing else we can do. These are tough questions.
0: You've written about Hannibal's famous elephants, arguing that their role was perhaps less significant from a military than from a psychological standpoint. What was the impact of the Carthaginians showing up astride elephants?
1: Well, I think the impact of the Carthaginians being in Italy in the first place was terrifying. It was a a huge information warfare coup. They had marched 900 miles overland from southern Spain across the Pyrenees, the Rhone, and the Alps, and then dropped down in northern Italy. The fact that they had elephants with them, something few Italians had ever seen, was also a very valuable terror weapon. You know, unfortunately for Hannibal, all but one of the elephants died over his first winter in Italy. Later on, there were some more elephants who were brought to Italy by the Carthaginians. But the elephants were never decisive as a weapon in his battles.
0: In another of your YouTube lectures on this topic, you share a thesis, and I'm quoting you here, that we love heroic leadership and we fear it, that we are passionately interested in geniuses and talented people that stand out from the crowd, people who seem to be able to bring us to a new level and to cut through obstacles and achieve goals, and at the same time, we fear what these people may do if left unrestrained. Why is this heroic leadership so fascinating?
1: Well, I think human beings are always looking up, always looking up to the heavens, always looking for something that's bigger and greater than any one of us. And genius is rare, and when people see it, I think they are really struck by it and can't help but admire it on a certain level. But geniuses can be dangerous. They can do things that the rest of us can't. And so I think people are not entirely wrong when they distrust it at the same time and they want it to be channeled. A genius who works for the good of society is a great blessing and a genius who turns his or her talent against the rest of society is a huge danger.
0: You bring up an interesting point about being able to study these individuals from a historical perspective. If we were alive and being ruled by an Alexander today, our perception would be overwhelmingly one of fear, probably, rather than the respect that we have reading your book today. Do you think history allows us a remove to examine these individuals without the real stakes of engaging with a personality like that type as we would if we were cosynchronous synchronous with them?
1: Yeah, that's a really great point. Yes. I mean, certainly history allows us to have a sort of risk-free engagement with someone of great ability, but terrifying ability. But don't you think that all of us at some point in our lives meet someone or encounter someone who's really talented, but also kind of scary? I mean, I don't think that's all that unusual an experience. It happens to most people at some point. And maybe Alexander's just more extreme.
0: If you did bring Alexander into a modern context, he probably would have a very different mode of achieving his goals, and his goals themselves might be different. With that in mind, I'd like to explore what greatness has come to mean relative to the periods in which these men lived. What would a contemporary Alexander look like today?
1: Well, nowadays, certainly we respect military figures, but they're probably not the most prominent people in our society. The most prominent people tend to be political leaders, business leaders, corporate leaders, and celebrities either in entertainment or in sports. So if Alexander is motivated by honor and glory, he said that above all, he was inspired by the image of Achilles who he considered to be his literal ancestor. He believed that he was descended from Achilles then the thing he would have wanted most in life was honor. So he might not have gone into the military at all. Instead, he might want to create a new corporation that would conquer unthought of realms or realms that hadn't been opened. I bet Alexander would have liked to have been one of the pioneers of the digital age at the end of the 20th century, the turn of the 21st century, for example. He might want to run for the highest political office. That might appeal to him. He might have gone into the military because Alexander did love war. There's no question about that. But if he did, I suspect that after a successful military career, had he been an American, he would have turned around and run for the presidency. That's what you expect from Alexander.
0: You published an article in Time in 2019 titled, Women in Ancient Rome Didn't Have Equal Rights, They Still Changed History. In that piece, you argue that there is much to learn from the stories of little-known women that shaped Roman history. You write of Attia, the mother of Augustus, who was essential in shaping his rise to the seat of emperor. You also write of Cainus, a gifted slave with a photographic memory, who wrote a letter that warned the next emperor, Tiberius, of a plot to remove him from the throne. Based on these two examples, the role played by women has often been less overt, but not less meaningful. I'm curious what lessons we might be able to extrapolate from this idea about power and the role of women in history. Well,
1: for one thing, we need to pay more attention to the role of women in history. I mean, I think we've become much more sensitive to that since the 1960s, but there's still a lot of work to be done. For another thing, we might ask, how do women exercise power in ways different from men? We might say, obviously, women in earlier societies simply had less access to freedom than women today do. By the same token, there may be lessons that we can learn for how women succeed that might still be relevant to women today, might still teach leadership lessons for women and for men. I mean, one thing I learned when I was department chair, I should have known it before, but I think department chairs learn it, is that Women and men often behave in different ways in the workplace. It's not that one is right and one is wrong, but they tend to be different in some ways. And it's very good for people to be aware of both. And I think studying history can give us some insight into that.
0: Do you think if there were more female historians looking back that the appreciation or understanding of women's place in history might have been different?
1: Yes, it would have been. But nowadays, there are a lot of female historians and female historians obviously playing a big role in recovering a past that had been forgotten in many ways. So, yes, most certainly.
0: In recent months, there's been a lot of commentary surrounding the response of female heads of state to the pandemic. How can we take the lessons of ancient women and reshape our notions of female leadership and perhaps elect and promote more women into power today?
1: There are a lot of misconceptions about the role of women in the ancient world, and I think that one thing that historians can do is to move us beyond the misconceptions to look at the realities, and they can be quite instructive. For instance, in the case of Cleopatra, one might start out by thinking of her as a sex goddess or as somebody who corrupted Mark Antony. But in fact, Cleopatra was an excellent ruler of Egypt. She was the queen of Egypt. She was a very good administrator, and she was a very good strategist who had a real vision as to how she wanted to preserve her country's independence from Rome and the direction that she wanted to take it in. So administration and strategy are two examples of, that we can learn from women as leaders in the ancient world. And some of the ancient leaders that we look at were very good at intelligence, So, in the Battle of Salamis, the Persian military included the first female admiral in history, a woman named Artemisia. And Artemisia saw through the deception of Themistocles and the Athenians. She tried to convince the Persian high command that the Greeks were not to be trusted, that they were deceiving the Persians and the Persians shouldn't fall for it, but they didn't listen to her. Likewise, in the Roman Empire, the second Roman emperor, Tiberius was in danger of falling prey to a conspiracy led by his right-hand man, who he thought he could trust. And it was a woman in the royal family named Antonia, and her secretary, her personal assistant, a woman named Canis, or chief of staff, if you will, who was a slave, by the way, at the time, they saw through it. And it was Canis who wrote a letter to Tiberius that revealed the conspiracy to him. These would be two examples that are very important. The Spartans understood the importance of women. Although Sparta was a very military society, the Spartans believed that it would be impossible for Spartan soldiers to excel on the battlefield without having mothers, wives, and daughters who stood by them. And it inculcated the kind of courage they needed and the kind of values that they needed in order to succeed. The famous image of the Spartan mother saying to her son as he went off to battle, come back with your shield or on it, I think points to a a deeper reality that women played an absolutely essential role in education and morale in ancient Sparta, even though it's supposed to be the ultimate man's world.
0: Before we close, I have one last question. The public conversation around higher education is centered on the rising cost of university education and the difficulty students have in paying off loans for anything but STEM degrees. And at the same time, ongoing historical study relies on interested students entering the system. There's doubtless high school students trying to decide right now whether majoring in history makes quote-unquote sense. I'm curious if... What can individuals do and also what must happen systemically in order to make sure that history doesn't become a niche subject removed from mainstream consciousness?
1: Well, there are lots of things that can be done. For one thing, we as a society, I think, need to do some soul searching and ask ourselves how we can continue to be successful without having an educated and sophisticated knowledge of our past. And you can't do that without studying history. For another thing, I think that it's important that academic historians, that we academic historians realize that one of our jobs is to talk to the public. I think that some of us in the academy, I mean, my colleagues in the academy everywhere do wonderful work, but sometimes we don't talk to the public as much as we might. And I think that has to be part of what we do. As far as education, well, we can't change things overnight. And we have to respect the fact that our students need to look to their own futures and their own job prospects. That being said, we can come up with all sorts of ways that allow them to take some history classes, either as electives or as a history minor and sometimes as a double major. There are all sorts of things that we can do, but I think we need to begin by acknowledging that history matters, that history is important, that it's a subject that we need to be aware of and that we ignore at our peril as a society even as a society that is focused on the future.
0: Barry Strauss, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for being on the Present Value Podcast.
1: Thank you. The pleasure is mine. Thanks for hosting me.
0: The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. I'm your host for this episode, Greg Wool. This episode was produced by Maria Castex, Jason Lee, and Elizabeth Patz. Music by Pottington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.